The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If your news resolution is to visit more fantasy animation-themed websites and contribute to more online blogs, then you're in luck. We'd love for you to get involved in the conversations. So visit us at fantasy-animation.org. You can follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch, or you can find us on Facebook. A quick reminder, too, of our competition to win a copy of AP3 and Horace Studies Journal, courtesy of Intellect. All you need to do is leave a review of the podcast on the iTunes store or submit a blog post idea. The deadline is the 4th of February, but we'll explain exactly what all that means later on. For now, enjoy the show. Hello listeners and welcome back to the Fantasy Animation Podcast for another week's worth of gabbing and gassing about all things fantasy and animation. This week we are discussing the Netflix original Matt Groening produced and created Disenchantment and I've said that nice and pronounced because I'm now probably going to call it Disenchanted for the rest of the show because I can't stop doing that. Uh, My name is Alex Sargent and I'm Chris Holliday. Welcome to the show. Chris, uh, we have got a television show to talk about. We have. Um, also, I just want to make clear that in the gassing and gabbing that's about to happen, sure. um, you're the gasser and I'm the gabber. Anyway. Um, okay. Uh, so Disenchantment, yes, it is our first television programme. This is something that we have been talking about a lot. Normally, we, we would take a, a film and we've, we've sort of uh, looked at a few, I guess, obvious and some not-so-obvious examples. But Disenchantment was something that we talked about. How are we going to approach something that is kind of... Uh, it's an animated series, it's an animated serial, but it's also a kind of fantasy sitcom, mm-hmm. if you like. Um, and it also connects to, I guess, American television animation and traditions of American television animation. Though, as you mentioned, it's Netflix. Um, so we, we're sort of, I think there is lots to talk about because there are any, as we record this, there are only 10 episodes uh, with a, another kind of glut of episodes to be released. But we've got 10 episodes and we're going to try and have to navigate through stuff that crops up across across the whole 10. And that's what we're going to do. We're going to try and yeah talk to you about these 10 episodes, how it works as an animated program that is very much about fantasy. And why did we pick this as our first uh, television show? Well, I guess one, let's be honest, reason is that it's relatively new. It's only 10 episodes. And we are nothing if not current. And we are nothing if not current and lazy. So yeah. 10 episodes was a lot more appealing than, say, delving into the back catalogue of a, of a rich... Um, fantasy show with a, with a long-established, um, uh, prestigious sort of uh, back catalogue. Um, but there are other reasons as well why we picked it. Um, I think Matt Groening yeah. is someone we should probably talk about in terms of the landscape of, of animation on television. Um, and as you say, I think there's some uh, interesting things to talk about in terms of how it deals with fantasy, what it uses in terms of fantasy and what it doesn't. Uh, so, yeah, I think there's some fruitful stuff here. Well, something that we've, we've talked about is a sort of... Uh, I guess the, the the recognition of a program, in this case, a program, an animated program, of the codes and conventions of fantasy as we might understand it, a particular medieval version of fantasy, yeah. a medieval setting in which to locate its its quite outlandish at times events. But at the same time, this sort of push-pull between trying to very quickly establish uh, an interesting world that we might want to inhabit for the <laughs> next 10 episodes, 20 episodes, 
um, 30 years, don't know how long it's going to go for. But at the same time, it's trying to be satirical. and it's very much parodying the, the, the icons of, of fantasy. So it is both, and I think, and I'm stealing your point as you look at me perplexed, I'm stealing the point that you made off, off air to make it seem like it's my original point, that it is both constructing a world and then simultaneously deconstructing. And actually, I mean, I'm, I'm still ambivalent about the, the series. I'm interested in where it will go next. Mm-hmm. I think it needs more characters. I think it needs kind of fleshing out. But this is to be expected. We're 10 episodes in, so... Yeah, I, I think I think sort of, you know, colloquially in talking about it before recording, we, we both sort of agreed it was a mixed bag and not necessarily that successful at the moment, but with some potentially promising shoots. But I, I do think the major conflict we were finding in, in these first few episodes um, is this desire to construct this quite elaborate fantasy land whilst at the same time uh, poke fun at fantasy conventions um, and, and to subvert and to alter and to deconstruct. Because I would ultimately argue, and I think most theories of comedy would back this up, is that comedy is inherently uh, deconstructive by its nature. Comedy rips apart, pulls apart, breaks apart. Mm. Um, and this this creates a very interesting relationship with fantasy, at least, um, from my perspective, in that there's a very checkered but not necessarily unprofitable relationship between comedy and fantasy in that on one hand fantasy also likes to pick apart and break away because that's the whole point of fantasy is it breaks from reality it it it, it moves away from it transcends it it, it has a certain yeah. anarchic spirit in it in that respect in that fantasy can be anything as long as it isn't what it is right now yeah <laughs> yeah um but but at the same time there's a sort of uh, problem with that in that fantasy also wants to construct something in its place Whilst comedy rarely wants to do that, right? Comedy often just enjoys the deconstruction. So, I, I mean, I would add to that kind of conversation this mm. this role of animation as as potentially subversive and, and sort of a part of a, a network of, of ideas that hopefully we'll talk about. Intertextuality, parody, um, animation itself being a sort of um, rhetorical medium insofar as that it interrogates it is it is to to draw a fantasy setting to draw a castle is to commit to an idea of castles um, and so there's something around animation's relationship to parody the role of intertextuality in, in disenchantment uh, and also something I, that I, I was thinking when I was watching it is the sort of this context of the post Shrek fairy tale sure um, and there's some interesting stuff about this sort of post Shrek so Shrek for the for the um, listeners are a group of films. The first one's probably the best out of, of a lot of them. Uh, produced by DreamWorks. Uh, the first film came out in 2001 and it won the inaugural Best Animated Feature Oscar. But it very much took as its target Disney animation and particularly the Disney fantasy fairy tale. And, and there are some scholars such as uh, Jessica Tiffin who has written about in her book Marvelous Geometry, which is a great name for it, you know. Uh, if you love your algebra or your maths, that's a great title. But she's talked about the post-Shrek fairy tale as the way to do fairy tale now is actually to not be as sincere as, as we once were uh, and to start deconstructing. So there's some really interesting... It's very much a, a post-Shrek movie for all its, its um, uh, good things and its bad things. And so I'd like to talk a bit at some point about all the signage in the in the television in the episodes because there's lots of comedy signs um, that are playful sort of deconstructions of potions and uh, pixies and fairy dust um, we see a little kind of um, Tinkerbell style character who uh, is a prostitute mm. and there's a really interesting you know it's an adult is an adult um, I think it's adult oriented um, and you know I mean I wonder whether in, a, in 45 minutes time we'll enjoy it a bit more than we currently do as you said it's a mixed bag but there is certainly lots to talk about uh, as 
as a current example of a fantasy or an animated fantasy television series. Great. So should we, I guess, what's, what's, the, what's the show about? So the show revolves around a series of characters, the main character of which uh, I think who we follow is, is Princess Bean, um, uh, who is the sort of daughter of uh, the king of Dreamland, yes. which is sort of this magical fairy tale kingdom set very much in the Disney mould, at least in this sort of castle realm. It's also an excellent theme park in Margate. Carry on. <laughs> this is the uh, the Kent uh, the Kent uh, contingent. Shout out to the Kent contingent. This, now, I, I was talking to someone from Kent the other day. This is so not going to be relevant. but uh, yeah. This might get cut out. If it doesn't get cut out, enjoy this bit. <laughs> this is what the luxury of podcasts. Um, we're just yeah. chatting. But it's definitely um, not padding. There, apparently there's a difference between a man from Kent and a Kentish man. Have you heard this? Yes, I have. Are um, you a man from from Kent or a Kentish man, Chris? Well, I am. <laughs> I am <laughs> definitely not frantically googling this as we are live on air. Um, so as he scouts, forever the scholar, Chris feels need to check that he understands this before. So uh, a man of Kent, it. and I'm and I'm and I'm quoting here yeah. from something that I always turn into, which is the uh, 1929 work, A History of Rochester. Sure. Which is some say that a man of Kent is a term of high honour, while a Kentish man denotes but an ordinary person. In yeah. which case, I am a man of Kent. Okay. Born and raised. In Kent. Anyway, Fine. let's talk so, about. So, Dreamland. Uh, yes, Dreamland. Yes. <laughs> Dreamland yeah. is um, a magical fairy tale kingdom, very much set in the traditional mold, uh, ruled over by King Zog, um, who is a sort of uh, autocrat ruler, very sort of um, angry, tempestuous, and all things, things like that, and keeps his daughter in line. She's required to do her princess duties and yep. sort of stuff and she is dissatisfied by this and wants to sort of rebel and have a different life which is very much actually part of the Disney mould of princess right? Yes um, certainly the first episode which is about her sort of rebellion and that she doesn't want to fit in but you know the, 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 the issue of parody and satire is channeled through her at the start because she doesn't want to kind of conform to uh, royalty, it's, it's brave but it's very brave. It, it is but it's very interesting how she doesn't conform and actually I think the, it, this I would argue this might be a post-post-Shrek fairy tale. Right. That it has this desire to deconstruct, but it almost is making fun of the attempts to deconstruct thus far. Yes. In, and almost taking aim at that and the toothless nature of that, right? In the Shrek... Because I was thinking about it, I really like the original Shrek, and I suspect we'll do Shrek at some point uh, yeah. further down the line. I really like the original Shrek, but, but, the, but sort of Shrek very quickly became that which it was yeah. satirising, wasn't it? And, yeah. and it did it because ultimately it didn't quite have the strength of its convictions as a franchise to stick to that quite anarchic, spiky, subversive edge. Whilst this, um, for better or for worse, sort of does allow itself to have teeth and spikes. So she rebels, she's not satisfied, but she rebels by uh, drinking heavily, by frequenting brothels and taverns, drug taking yep. um, uh, she's also sort of you know um, deals with issues of depression and things like that this is this is a princess grounded in what we might call reality in that respect well actually and, and, and you know just jumping at episode three the princess of darkness takes as its theme hard drinking mm -hmm. the joyriding of a royal carriage um, and a sort of idea of hedonism that she is she is embodying not but I, I think that's absolutely right that actually the the television program, from the off, takes aim at this idea that the way to do fairy tales mm -hmm. within kind of current uh, multimedia is to is to do is to do Shrek is to do that yeah. kind of um, kind of targeting and playing. Well, of course she's rebellious, and so yeah, what it what it adds to that register is that it 
it goes quite full on. So there's one there's one moment in the first episode which is about kind of singing, ostensibly whistling while you work. One of the characters says, "Singing while you work isn't happiness; it's mental illness." And so it's very targeted on on the yeah the codes and conventions of fantasy and fairy tale, but also the way in which we bring those codes and conventions as a, as an audience, as a television audience in this case, um, and how producers, filmmakers, um, animators like to like to manipulate because fantasy, I imagine, is quite an easy target. So yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. It's it's parodying fantasy, but it's parodying the parody of fantasy. Yeah. So I, and I and I quite like. I quite like the the character of Princess Bean. I, mm. You know, I think that this is a thing that I think they will get right eventually. In that, in the first few episodes, she has to be quite a surrogate character because she's sort of having to do a lot of the heavy lifting plot wise. Mm. But I think the more you settle into her, more she's quite a complicated character. Yeah. On the one level, she's quite sweet and uh, she likes her friends, and she sort of, in one level, does embody this sort of good-hearted princess. But she also, um, you know, does. Uh, horrible things because of her desire to act out, and her, you know the, the acting out thing isn't necessarily admirable in and of itself. Mm. Her acting out isn't sitting on a stool singing lovely songs in a sweet manner. Her acting out gets her into trouble, other people into trouble, and is genuinely self-destructive at the same time. <laughs> you know, yeah. I'm just thinking back at you know the the, the first few episodes where okay, you establish her her sort of rebellion against traditional mm-hmm. uh, royal norms. She the, the sort of subplot certainly within the first five episodes is that the her father King's is trying to marry her off, mm-hmm. and so various things happen. She doesn't want to get married. She doesn't want to get married. Um, she starts. There's a kind of montage of her trying to ask different men out. Yeah. She pairs up with a, a kind of Viking called Sven at one point. <laughs> she uh, joyrides, as I said, a, a royal carriage. There's one episode where she's sort of trained to be an executioner. Yeah. But it's she, yeah, I think you're right. There's a there's a degree of complexity to her. She's only 19 years old, and actually, there are certain references to her being on the cusp of a teenager. And so, this idea that she part of the reason that her father is having trouble sort of managing her is that she is she's kind of going through puberty, or she's going through something that is kind of biological, and that's really interesting because we join the action as as, as a sort of she's a 19 year old princess, and we are trying to figure out. And she's trying to figure out what she really wants from this kind of uh, of life, her relationship with her her father and her stepmother as well. So in that in that sense, it's very you know it's, it's very Di- so far so Disney sort of thing. Um, but that takes the first two or three minutes, and then we're off into um, heavy drinking and yeah. and kind of joyriding. And she steals from her own family. She tries to behead somebody. So there's she's yeah she's great. There's a commitment within the show to displaying her lack of frustration as having real psychological. Consequence. This isn't just a character motivation to push the plot. She is grossly unhappy yeah. um, and a, you know, a flawed human being because of the demons. We're going to get to demons later in a second. But the demons, both actually external and internal to her, um, which I think is interesting because I think there's another character like that who actually is my favourite character, which is El- Elfo, yes. uh, voiced by um, Nate Faxon, um, who is an elf. Uh, from a magical land called Elfwood. And, and I have one of my notes here. I love Elfwood. Uh, Elfwood is this sort of, um, it's a small world, um, gundrop forest uh, paradise where all the elves are constantly happy, mm-hmm. constantly singing songs about being happy, eat nothing but candy. It's sort of like a sort of Smurf-esque um, existence. Uncontrollably 
and Elfo uh, is, uh, is, is sick of being happy all the time and wants to experience sadness and so wants to leave Elfwood. So the first episode kind of cuts between these two yeah. spaces. You have uh, Princess uh, well, Tia Beanie, or Princess yeah. Bean to give her her, her nickname, um, who is this sort of heavy drinker and is dissatisfied with her, her life as a princess. And we go from we go from Dreamland, the you know the space, not the theme park, to Elfwood. And the first episode, certainly the first few minutes of the first episode, moves between these two spaces and tries to introduce two characters that are in one way or another dissatisfied. Uh, Elfo is a similar in age actually, and there are romantic moments between her and, and Prince uh, between him and Princess Bean. Sorry, yeah. About the rest of the the first ten episodes, but yeah, he is his role in Elfland is to kind of challenge what they call the jolly code. He's not really interested in being continually happy and, and jolly. He's interested in what exists outside the walls. You know that sort of idea of the palace walls. What what exists outside in the world? And he wants to escape this sort of pervasive life of sweetness and joy that is inhabited. You know, we see ogres and trolls and elves, um, and he he's an elf who wants to resist, as you say, that sort of gumdrop, very, I guess, very um, fairy tale esque image of, and we see Hansel and Gretel later in the first well, first series, um, but he wants to resist his life as, a, as an elf. And ultimately, these two characters come together, Bean and Elfo, uh, and then they're joined by a third. So they're joined yeah. by a really interesting... So I think so. if Elfo's your favourite yeah. character, I think... So I like Lucy, this, this short for Lucifer, um, who is a sort of demon who everyone mistakes for a talking cat. And he is all black, so kind of silhouetted, and is sort of a quick-change artist. Um, and so he is... Uh, a sort of sidekick, kind of comedy sidekick, quite dry, quite dark, both behaviourally and, and visually. Uh, and it, th- this programme is really about those three characters trying to kind of navigate both the worlds that they live in, but their set of relationships, because they've just met. So the set of relationships, everything's very new, and so they're trying to find out about each other. Um, so really the series is about those those three characters. Those are the central triad, and then there's a yeah. couple of others here. There's King Zob, we've mentioned, the, the uh, was it... Una, the, the the stepmother of Bean yes. and things like that. But you're right, I think the, the lack of characters is perhaps what this show will yeah. go on to develop and things like that. But it's about the relationship to those three. Some episodes are quite episodic where they'll sort of, you know, just go on a, on a little adventure around the corner. And then it all culminates in the last two episodes with a, with a various sort of 90-minute arc um, across the thing. And actually we should say, um, I don't know if this is worth mentioning or not, I found it quite striking that these episodes were... Um, in that classic Netflix style, slightly more fluid and expansive yeah. than the formats we've seen in the past from Matt Groening, in that most of them are around about the half an hour mark, 27 to 29, a few are slightly longer than that. I think the first episode is about 37 minutes, things like that. Um, yeah. And I think another thing that, that the film, the, the film, the, telev- the television show is struggling with a little bit is that, that capacity for a longer running time and what you do with it. Well, it's interesting because Groening's other work, notably The Simpsons, but also yeah. Futurama, I think have been certainly challenged on the basis that their internal logic has kind of gone out the window. And, and obviously, if a show is running for 30 plus years, there are going to be inconsistencies. And that's, that's I suppose, part of the course. Um, and so actually, within the world of something like The Simpsons, the, the epi- individual episodes seem, seem quite kind of sealed off and don't really act out a conversation with other episodes. There might be references, but ultimately, there are sta- these are standalone episodes. In the case of Disenchantment, 
what was interesting is that the first episode leads directly into the second episode, or the second episode, um, for whom the pig oinks, to give it its official title, um, takes up events from the previous episode straight away. So the first episode ends on a cliffhanger, um, and by cliffhanger I mean brackets, apparent suicide, with characters jumping off of a cliff, and then the second episode picks up right after. So there's this really interesting way in which... The, the narrative is being stretched serially across different different episodes and yet there are other episodes within the first 10 that don't do that um, one of the episodes ends with the release of a multitude of demons from jars and then from my memory nothing, that is sort of forgotten they're out in the world and that's fine certainly yeah. the next episode picks up in a different kind of context but there are instances where the second third episodes are in conversation with the preceding one and I quite I quite like that. Um, I wonder is that a, is that a byproduct of the fact that this is now a fantasy? Yeah, story? I think it is. There's something about wait. Well, this isn't just me that thinks this, but with this idea of of you know you've got this grand secondary world that you're you're as a viewer waiting to be taken on a journey through, um, and it almost feels like there's no like to have Princess Bean and her friends go on a little scrape or in dreamland uh, and that's it and that's the end of the episode in the way you might get on a Simpsons episode it almost feels like there's that's not that's not good enough or that's not um, significant enough for this kind of um, this kind of narrative or this kind of narrative world because you're expecting as part of the narrative to be introduced to the various mm. facets of this world and, there's an, and it's interesting how it does that in that there are episodes that do that and they almost feel inconsequential because they're just sort of delving into a little aspect of the world and it doesn't seem to play into the wider narrative. And yet then it comes back later and, and it does play into it. So I find the way the show is almost both episodic and not very very interesting in this respect. And fantasies like this, there's a, um, you know, what fantasy stories are both stories contained within their own right that often involve a lot of world building and questing and journeying and all this sort of stuff. But then you'll also also find that fantasies are the most likely stories to repeat themselves or to have multi-series volumes or to have, you know, uh, Conan stories that go on and on and then he goes on a different adventure each week. So there is this is part of the DNA of fantasy as well, but it's about how you use the magical space you've set up for yourself. And And it does feel a bit dissatisfactory, I guess, to just have them milling about in dreamland there needs to be a certain um spatial pull and push around this this sort of world of impossible of 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 possibility that yeah certainly the first few episodes are trying hard to yes establish a world with a kind of logic and a set of rules uh, and a lot of the action takes place in and around the castle which is is and in fact the the first shot of the first episode is a sort of uh shot of the castle and the camera right i think it's it's computer animation, you know, it's digital made to look, we've talked about this before, uh, cell shading or tune shading, digital technology that's made to look like um, cell animation. So there are hints when the camera moves around and rotates around the buildings in the first episode and then pulls back and we see what is effectively our location and it seems to function in a way, and you'll, you'll kind of correct me if I'm wrong here, but you know, the role of maps and and mapping out the topography or the geography of a fantasy space. Uh, so it does that, and then the first 10 episodes are really taking us through, you know, the local spaces, the the, the parts of the of the city space or the town space that are going to be our regular haunts. The animation's crucial for that as well. I mean, this is from my limited perspective on it, but there, there does seem to be a lot of 
uh, money and time invested in the loca- in the landscape shots. When you get a new location, and mm. when we return to Dreamland and we get these establishing shots of Dreamland, it almost reminded me right back to episode one of this podcast of the sort of multi-plane camera uh, work in Snow White, sort yeah. of vivifying and, and actualizing these these great big spaces. Yeah, um, and and there are some. So most of the episodes take place in and around, in as I said, in and around the castle. Um, episode two takes takes place largely at sea. Certainly, the mm-hmm. second half of episode two, the aforementioned for whom the pig oinks, takes place at sea, and there's some really nice um, shots uh, of the the water and the sea and, and transformation. There's yeah. the um, uh, the transformation of one of the characters into a pig, and and vice versa. So. And then the third episode that's, that's about joyriding takes us through the, the landscape and the, and the forest. And, and yeah, there's some really interesting... Actually, the, the role of space is interesting because it, it looks very luscious and very detailed. Um, there's also, for me, that the programme feels a lot about nar- like narration um, because... And this is embodied in two characters. So King Zog is a character who seems to... He talks out things that he's doing, which I find really interesting. So uh, there's one uh, moment in one of the episodes where he is putting smoke charges in his ears to pretend, to show to his daughter that when he gets mad, uh, you know, in a classic cartoon way that smoke comes from the ears. And he's like, I've set this up. And he starts talking out what he's going to do. Put the things in the ears, press the button. And there's also a framing narrative where two characters are looking into a pit of smoke and narrating the whole show. Mm. Um, and so the, the programme is about the, the way to kind of tell stories. Um, and so and I quite like that, that it's, it's about uh, this sort of strange <coughs> framing narration that's, that shows that all the action is being watched by what we assume to be villainous, villainous um, characters. But then the show itself has to be quite quick in, in narrating all the bits of information. What's this world going to be like? What's acceptable? What's not acceptable? So there has to, a lot of work has to be done in the first half a dozen episodes to try and establish what kind of world this is and, and why, what directions it could potentially go. Um, and maybe that's a symptom of its fantasiness, that it has to do a lot of quote-unquote mapping. Yeah, it's making me think, as I say, there is this thorny relationship between fantasy and comedy that the show is, is making me um, postulate on a little bit in that... There are actually lots of very successful and very well-known fantasy comedies, uh, shows that embrace both fantasy and comedy, or films that embrace both fantasy and comedy. There are loads of them. Um, they might not strike to you to mind as being called that, that term, but there are lots of them. They very often involve primary world fantasies, uh, so something like, say, uh, Mary Poppins, which we talked about a couple of podcasts ago, where the world is intrusively rea- is reality and then fantasy comes to invade. And then what the comedy and the fantasy align is, they're both deconstructing and they're both subverting and they are both uh, interrupting the reality. Yeah, mm-hmm. Comedy is, is a vessel that interrupts reality. It plays with words, it plays with what they mean, it plays with lots and lots of different things that we take to be true. Um, and fantasy does the same thing. So this goes right back to the 1930s. There's loads of sort of uh, fantasy comedies of like, you know, ghost comedies uh, or or things like that where magical beings sort of come in and interrupt the hapless protagonists who are trying to get on with their lives. Lots of screwball comedies have fantasy elements, all this kind of stuff. But there aren't that many successful fantasy comedies where set in secondary worlds. And I wonder it's because in that, the fantasy isn't being used to disrupt or intrude or or break apart in the way that Mary Poppins is meant to break apart the Banks family, it's being used to build and construct and Mm. make. And maybe there's something about that that makes it quite difficult to do 
in, in that term? Because I'm thinking about some of the sort of attempts to do this in the past. Something like Your Highness. Do you remember that's god-awful um, yeah. sort of adult-rated comedy set in a fantasy world that just doesn't work at all? And there's quite a lot of examples of attempting to do this and it just not working. And I think this show is... Um, it's, it's both... It's, it doesn't quite know how serious to take its fantasy world, perhaps. Yeah, well, there's, there's obviously... If we, if we think that animation has the potential to subvert and, and, and deconstruct and its, its identity as a creative medium is rooted in flexibility and transformation and, and issues of, of the, the unstable or the flexible, then and fantasy is often an intrusion that interrupts. Um, I mean, I guess I, mean, I, I, I suppose I'm interested in the role of mischief in some way that there's a, there's a the sudden interruption of order or actions um, that would normally be the, the quality of a fantasy film or fantasy text um, here has to, as you say, has to kind of fulfill another, another function and I wonder whether this goes back to what we were saying what I was saying earlier in, in, in uh, quotation of you this relationship between construction and deconstruction that it is trying hard to establish a world very quickly and economically for an audience who they are hoping are going to return and then at the same time part of its identity as as a construction of fantasy is its deconstruction of the same thing and so it's 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 rooted in in the the role of of mischief and what is allowed to be destabilized and or considered yeah. normal or transgressed or um made unsteady because i would argue in something like the simpsons right um animation and comedy is being used to deconstruct and because what it's done is it's taken the classic family sitcom format and both the animation style and the comedy is being used to pick apart to poke fun at to break apart that's Groening's thing thing yeah. right and and Futurama I'm less familiar with but I've seen enough episodes of to sort of have a play with and I think that is similarly interested in deconstructing the sort of uh, sci-fi um, space opera it's more um, genre based, yeah. I, I suppose the the target of The Simpsons is is the format, i.e., the sitcom, the yeah. situation comedy, and, and that more broadly, sort of the American family and American life and yeah. you know, things like that. Uh, whereas, yeah, you're right. Futurama is more genre based and, and perhaps has got more to play with in that sense because it's playing with science. But but I feel like this and this could do the same as Futurama. But I feel yeah. actually, to both its credit and in these early episodes, its detriment. It, it there are moments it wants to, to take the fantasy seriously. Yeah, the fan, and that's the, yeah. I think there's interesting that we are we have to believe that in this world that fantasy is existing and present and part of its order, mm-hmm. um, which is difficult because then you've got to try and figure out where the interruption and the punchline comes yeah. from. And I think that's where so this role of kind of a lot of the the, the gags are. I'm trying to think whether they're more visual or verbal. There's a lot of visual gags that are articulated through these signs, these kind of playful ye olde signs. Um, there's a sign in one of the episodes about orphans, uh, like orphanage, uh, every child must go. These kind of playful, which is very, very kind of post-trait. But in a world in which the fantasy exists, where does the principle of interruption or the, the punchline come from? And it's often, it's often the kind of witty dialogue. And I think that's where the two sidekick characters work they kind of play off of each other. I can get married or I can die. This should be a harder decision. Hey, death is the easy way out. So I say do it. Do it. Do it, do it, do it. No, your cruddy life is worth living, Bean. And so is mine, if you live. Oh, jeez. 
Do it. Do it, do it, do it. Hi everyone, just cutting in here to uh, remind you all about the fantasy animation competition time. I've told you, you need to stop saying Been it. Been saying it for a week now, I'm not going to stop. So what is this competition then? Well, as listeners to previous podcasts will know, we have a competition that uh, has been brought to us um, by the fine people at Intellect Publishing, publishers of academic books, journals, um, and fan studies, yep. animation, and fantasy. Excellent. If you enter the competition, you have a chance of winning a copy of uh, the Horror Studies Journal. Yes, and you can also win a copy of AP3, so Animation Production Process and Practice. Um, and you can read about all kinds of scholarly articles on these two things. It's a really good introduction for those who perhaps want to delve into the world of academia a little bit. And for those working in academia, hey, we could always use extra articles to source and engage with. And hey, who has the time and the resources to find them these days? So what we're saying is that they are particularly sought-after items. So, so given that they are sought-after items, mm -hmm. what do people need to do to win a copy? Very simple, Chris. All you have to do is one of two things. You can either submit a blog post idea via our website or frankly via Twitter or by um, Facebook. Or grab us on the street. Simply, so all you have to do there is, is contact us, letting us know that you'd be interested in writing a blog and pitching us that idea. What else could they do? Well, the second way that they can win a copy of one of these journals uh, is to leave us a review on iTunes. Mm -hmm. So listen to the podcast, go back and listen to them all, mm -hmm. um, and leave us uh, a lovely review, and we will put your name into the proverbial hat. Absolutely. So if you do one of those two things, you'll be entered into the chance of winning a competition. A few people have done it already, yep. so the hat is starting to swell at the seams, but there's room for many more of you, so, so climb on in. Uh, all you have to do um, is get one of those sub submitted by the 4th of February. All names at the end of the 4th of February will be uh, considered and one will be selected randomly who will win those two uh, journals. Just a disclaimer, there is no actual hat, is there? Um, well, I certainly hope so. What kind of hat would the fantasy animation hat be? I guess it would it would have to be animated, so that would be a problem logistically. Email in and tell us what <laughs> what kind of hat would the fantasy animation hat be? Uh, yeah, sure, sure. If that if, if someone writes a blog post about that, then that was a good thirty seconds of riffing from us too. Lovely stuff. Right, let's get back to the show. My my feeling is that it's interesting for an animated show in the sense of most of the comedy is verbal. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't. I'm just. I'm. I think that is interesting. The role of the fantasy is is not to destabilize. It's to shore up. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, that yeah, that's also a, you know what, why do it in animation if if the animation, if yeah. you know verbal is the uh, is the is the key here. I so suppose that's, that's yeah. That's not to say that the the television program doesn't exploit the the kind of workings of animation. Absolutely, the the design of the characters is very Matt Groening esque. The classic kind of design with the overbite yeah. uh, and the big teeth. And and Princess Bean's character is often referred to as Bucktooth. Um, and she says at one point to her father, "If you mention my buck teeth again, I'm going to bite your spinal cord." Just yeah. to keep it light, keep it light. Um, so yeah, I think in terms of the exploitation of animation, it's I mean yeah, it's, it's very visually detailed and very lush and very pleasing to look at. Um, Again, maybe ten episodes is not that much to, to kind of judge it on, but it's 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 B plus promising. Yeah, yeah, I think. yeah. I don't think the animation's visual style is is particularly used to subvert. No, there is it. Like as I say, the one animation feature we've spotted is that actually something that's trying to sort of get us to engage with the space and 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 take it seriously. So where does the subversion come from? Is it is it kind of um, environmental or but uh, it's rooted in the, the the kinds of spaces or a, a kind of most comedy? If we think about theories of comedy, um, um, certainly within I guess film specifically, but things that are funny, the role of incongruity. There is, there is in the classic post-Shrek fairy tale way. There are certain kind of anachronistic 
uh, jokes. So there's there are lots of references. I think there's a veiled reference to, to Twitter where um, they're writing invitations to a birthday uh, to a, uh, a house party. One of the episodes revolves around a house party, and so or castle party, mm. I should say. <laughs> um, and the invitations are hung on the necks or put in the beaks of, of chickens or um, kind of turkeys, and then they go off and um, ostensibly tweet about it. And so there's some interesting, and they play a game of spin the elf. And so there are classic sort of anachron, and this is this is normal, the kind of incongruity between the time period and the kind of contemporaneous humour. Um, but other than that, it, yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. This is an interesting question. But where does the where where are the laughs? Can I, well, uh, to complicate it further, I think the things that are particularly subversive about it aren't that funny, and I don't think they're meant to be funny. And I think there's a certain <laughs> Matt Groening is the, the cartoonist of the overbite. There is a certain bite to yes. this show in that there are some very pointed attacks it's making about sort of society now using this fantasy framework. Gender politics is crucial here. Um, the character of Bean is deliberately... She's not an unruly woman. She's not a uh, warrior woman. She's a complex princess who is the victim of patriarchal society and yet refuses to be, and, and yet has to play out within that society at the same time. There's an episode where she has to save um, her demon character, Lucy. Lucy. Um, and yes. there's, a, there's this, like, you know, broader thematic point it's making that she's trying to save badness. Lucy is the voice on her shoulder. She's, Lucy, Lucy is a he, actually, I think, I believe. I'm not sure it's gendered in the, in the show. I don't know, but it's voiced by a man. Male but, actor, yeah. Um, uh, Lucy is the voice of badness and evil and dissent, right? So yeah. rather than the show where someone has a guardian angel, uh, Bean literally has a guardian demon sitting on on her shoulder. Um, and there's an episode where the demon is is attempted to be is it, someone tries to kill Lucy, and Bean saves Lucy, saves the voice of evil in her. Yes. So there's a sort of real important political points making about like women women being allowed to be bad or being allowed to be complex enough to have negative traits and all this kind of stuff. It also makes some shots at organised religion. Yes, um, yes. It takes some shot at... Um, at the, I, I think the, the, the relationship between Elfo and Bean is really interestingly sort of cross-special. As I say, it's a sort of yeah. well, it's a who, will they, won't they relationship between an elf that looks like an elf, is three foot tall, looks like an elf, and, and this um, otherwise, um, you know... Uh, human character yeah. um, but the show to part of making its point is it doesn't want you to take that as a joke it wants you to genuinely believe in this relationship and find a level of romance in it um, so a lot of what it's deeply interested in being subversive with isn't that funny uh, and it doesn't want it to be that funny it's interesting what you said about the fantasy being kind of used to to and, and actually, in a way, to not to not veil the target or the object of its affections, that it's being used in some way. Um, so in each of its episodes, in each of its episodes, which are called chapters, which mm -hmm. I quite like, um, it sort of seems to focus. And maybe this is a symptom of it being the first series. They're very clearly marked out as we're now we're doing a house party. We're doing this, and so episode five, called "Faster Princess Kill Kill," uh, is follows on from episode four in that Bean's been effectively banished to a convent. Um, and so a lot of the uh, the early episodes seem to be about her desire to figure out what she's good at, what she's not good at, where she fits. And also, I suppose, on the part of the, the makers themselves, what to do with a character. As you say, there are references to 
explicit references to kind of gender politics and, and this sort of kind of cross-species coupling, which represents a fascinating challenge for animation, I think, more broadly. Um, but there are interesting references to kind of contemporary um, kind of real-world events. So there's, uh, in episode three, there's a reference to uh, gender... They talk, call themselves highwaymen, and then there's an interruption. We're kind of gender-neutral highway people. And so they're, they're sort of interested in, in questions of gender and playing with that... Um, for its kind of comedic purposes. As I said, there are references to... Uh, I mean, there are lots of references to fantasy as well. I think mm-hmm. uh, there's a really good um, kind of monstrous retelling of ha- the Hansel and Gretel, yeah, what they yeah, call yeah. Hansel and Gretel Cold Case, which they reference early in episode five, and then the climax to episode five is this sort of Hansel and Gretel are these overweight, uh, kind of tubby German characters who are effectively cannibals, um, and they try and roast, kill and roast uh, Elfo and then eat... And then, and then eat it. So, I mean, yeah, there's lots of... Certainly the first half of the first series is trying to figure out... The, the television um, programme makers are trying to figure out what to do with these characters, as you would expect in a series. Um, the characters themselves are trying to figure out where they fit. Uh, and that's, that's why I think Bean is an interesting um, protagonist, because she is a 19-year-old female who is trying to figure out... Is trying to discover herself, her body, her limits, her relationships, who she's attracted to, yeah. um, what her vocation is. So, episode five, when she's when she leaves the the convent and is trained to be an ex- executioner, um, she exhibits a sort of moral fibre that perhaps hasn't mm-hmm. been there. Um, and yet, at this, in the same breath, she will save, as you say, she will save Lucy and, and sort of have to have to maintain the, uh, her relationship with a demonic character. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, within all that, was some really interesting points, and I'm digesting some of them. But within all that, I couldn't help pick up on cross-special relationships is a broader problem of animation, yes. of course. And I just feel like, on behalf of all listeners right now, what did you mean by that, and could you say more about yes. it? Yes. Um, so there's a terrific book that's probably, I don't know, about 10 years old, from Paul Wells, called The Animated Beastury, which is about the role of animals in animation. Um, which is obviously goes right back to it goes right back to Disney and predates Disney, um, and so these sorts of traditions of uh, anthropomorphism or, or the human, which we've talked about before, the kind of the humanizing of the non-human. Um, but I, at some point, there are kind of a few challenges, um, and so actually at, at one point, um, Wells talks about what he calls the Madagascar problem, which is named after um, the 2005 DreamWorks film Madagascar, which has um, or takes as its focus an army of um, New York Zoo animals, so uh, giraffe, a lion, a hippo, and a zebra, and so the film is used by Wells to talk about how far you push non-human uh, representation. Do you gesture towards the animal instincts? Do you keep them as ostensibly human? Do you play with? Uh, basically, do you play with their? the relationship between nature and culture, how much are these kind of cultured, socialised beings that are surrogates for humanity? Or actually are they... Do we do we need to address more forcefully the, the fact that they are animals in and of themselves? And so at some point, he talks about the Madagascar problem and he cites another scholar, Ed Hooks, who has spoken about, at the level of, I guess, design or when you're kind of conceiving of animated media, what do you do with kind of cross-species coupling? And actually... Some, um, I suppose The Simpsons doesn't do it. I mean, Family Guy does. Family Guy, so um, Seth MacFarlane's television program that uh, uses the main character of, of Brian, who is the family dog. It plays with his relationships with humans and his sexual relationships with humans as well. And so this idea of, of what animated characters 
or what animation does with characters that are non-human and who's it, who it pairs them off with, um, who it couples them up with, I guess plays into a wider... I, mean, I don't want to throw in the idea of, of sort of race, but the way that Hollywood uses white and non-white actors. And certainly Hollywood more generally, contemporary Hollywood, has, um, has well-documented issues with le- black males and... Um, white female leads in, in, in certain kinds of genres and who you pair who off with. And I'm, not, I'm not saying these rehearse the same kinds of debates, but a lot of the, the friction and the charge of, of, of animated media is the playing out of, of what happens if you pair this and this together, this animal with this animal. What happens if um, a human and a monkey get together in, as, in Aladdin? And so this sort of kind of cross-species coupling is an interesting space for animation to explore. What, what are the stakes of taking a human or a non-human and pairing them off within an army or maybe just within a, a buddy structure of other, of other non-humans? So that's a really interesting, I think, from the way that we receive these texts to, to animators themselves. You know, what does it mean for two kinds of characters of differing species to get together? Um, what does it mean for a rat to control a human chef? There's uh, a line in this show about rules. Yes. That's very um, crucial. Did you write it down at all? Uh, okay, so there's a bit in episode four. So this goes back to this idea of kind of fictional worlds and logic and what we what's allowed to happen, what do we expect to happen? Well, well it, it goes back to that, but I think perhaps more broadly, it also goes about sort of social rules and morality rules. And yes. Like that. But, but you, the, 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 it's a gag in the show it's, that we yeah, both it's picked al- up on. Yeah, it. it's almost a, thro- a kind of a throwaway gag. So it's the episode that's based around the... Um, Party. So the car, it's, the episode is called Castle Party Massacre, which tells you all you need, all you need to know about the tone and, and ultimate, ultimately what happens at the end. Um, but there is a small reference or pointed reference to fictional worlds <coughs> where there are two characters having a conversation uh, and one of the characters offers resistance to the other. Uh, and the other character who's got a, a sort of torch is trying to use this torch threateningly, this flaming torch, and says, um, my, my torch, my flaming torch begs to differ, or would argue differently. And the other character says, oh, you have a talking, you have a talking flame. And he says, no, 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 I just, it's just a figure of speech. I just... And then in response to that, the character says, okay, well, I need to know what can and can't happen. In this, in this world of magic, uh, you know, you could have a talking flame, but actually I need, I, I'm just trying to figure out, he says, what can and can't happen. Um, and so that's that kind of stands for the program as a whole. I think it's 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 working through it some, some sometimes successfully, sometimes less successfully. This relationship between reality and dreams, and actually that episode ends with the line, "Maybe dreams are reality, and reality are dreams." And so it's I think it's trying to play with the role of the place of fantasy. What role fantasy plays beyond? the way that graining minds, images of ogres and trolls and princesses and mid, the kind of medieval fantasy for the sitcom, what's actually going to do with fantasy yeah. and, and, and how that impedes on the rules of the game. And also, therefore, it, whatever one does with fantasy matters in terms of what you're trying to say about the reality you've left behind. There's, it, it taps what you were saying about animation there, about what, you know, because we can make animals yeah. do these things, should we, can we, will we become the next questions, right? Uh, and I think that's those are questions, you know, this is a, a debate that's happened in sort of fantasy theory, which is that there's a lot of fantasy theorists that have argued fantasy to be inherently political and subversive genre in that it starts by saying, well, let's not do what what must be done, let's do what could be done. Yeah. Which immediately asks you to start thinking about hopes and aspirations and fears rather than thinking about 
the way things are. So it's inherently unconservative genre. And yet at the same time, that might sound surprising to a lot of listeners because it's also a genre that's been accused of being inherently conservative and that a lot of forms of fantasy are very historically looking back. If you think about the sort of Tolkien world, it's a world of returning to history, returning to... Uh, white male uh, fantasies of rule, all this kind of stuff. And there's a, I don't often read out quotes on this, and I'm not going to make a habit of it, but there's a quote that I could, was struck uh, and suddenly was reminded of when you were talking about um, animal relationships in, and the, the interspecies from a, from a sort of well-worn and famous literary uh, theorist called Harold Bloom. And he says that fantasy fiction, uh, quote, promises an absolute freedom from belatedness, from the anxieties of literary influence and origination. Yet this promise is always shadowed uh, by a psychic overdetermination in the form itself of fantasy that puts the stance of freedom into severe question. So, end, so this ends up with the conclusion that what promises to be the least anxious of literary modes becomes the most anxious. So to sort of unpack that for listeners, it's, I think what he's saying there is that fantasy starts off by saying, well, you can do whatever you want because you mm. don't have to do what things are like. You can do whatever you want as a, as a creator. But given the freedom to do whatever you want, suddenly puts a huge responsibility on what you do because you don't have the excuse that the, the purpose of doing this is to replicate or to make natural. So everything you do has a consequence. Um, and I think that plays into some of the anxieties we have and we feel about this show as it settles in. It's an anxious little show, this. Well, I, I, I guess know, the title, it, you know, yeah. it's, it's, it's emphasising the deconstruction of something. Yeah. It's, not the, it's not the enchantment that we associate with kind of fantasy and, and, and magic and fairy tale. It's, it's positioning itself as a, a, the kind of the dis or the D or the, the un of it. Yeah. Um, and maybe that's where its anxiety comes from, that it's actively trying to, it's put pressure on itself to, to do the subversive thing. Um, but some bits are a lot more well, sincere. Yeah. It taps into the broader post because uh, it, The Simpsons is often talking about as the sort of quintessential postmodern mm. animation show, right? Nothing changes, and everything stays the same. Everything's about just deconstruction. The problem with well, the reason postmodernism leaves us in a very anxious state is that once you've deconstructed everything, what are you left with? Mm. Once you've burned the house down, you've got nowhere to live. Um, you know, so so. I don't think this show is purely interested in deconstruction for deconstruction's sake. I think mm. there is a there is a meaning behind all this, and it wants to sort of establish that meaning and, and say something rather than just deconstruct what someone else has already said. But I think it is still working way working through how it says it and what it what it says. Um, did you have any other notes or thoughts or um, things we haven't covered yet that you would like to share? With? Um, well, I, I feel like it would be remiss of me to not talk about how this is a programme about animation. Sure. No, I'm not, I'm not, <laughs> not going to do that, but there are some interesting... I, I guess it's not It's not interested in, in animation in the way that actually what it's interested in is illusion. Um, and so there's a couple of really interesting references that are... I've already talked about this idea of narration and the, the film is being... Uh, the film. I did it. I did it. Classic. Um, the television programme is being narrated. Um, there are references to kind of slow motion. And so the, this idea that animation is used to sort of animate an animated technique of deceleration. But there's a really funny bit where... Uh, in the house party episode where they think all the people have arrived and they open the, the, the drawbridge and there's no one standing there. So she says, open the, you know, open the draw, uh, open the gates. And then the gates open and there's nothing there. And then she says, ah, sorry, remove the curtain that shows the empty, um, 
street and then the curtain comes down and then everyone's standing there by so it's kind of playing with this idea of of the way it delivers the way it the way it delivers this idea of kind of illusion. I, I mean, it's it's not about it's not about animation in the strongest sense, but it's certainly about maybe it's actually about telling stories, and maybe it's, it goes back to this idea of kind of uh, kind of narration um, that it plays with reality and fantasy and nightmare and, and dreams, and then it combines it with um, the plague and hard drinking and prostitution. Um, and at one point, one of the I think it's the kind of Tinkerbell character says, "I've done a few tricks in my time." Yeah. So. Oh, and there's a few references to fantasy. You know, there's no place like Elmo, um, which is one of the references. The obligatory, thank you. I was, I was, I was hoping we were going to go a week without mentioning the Wizard of Oz, but actually no there's the obligatory Wizard of Oz reference for the week. Yep, so, I mean, it's very, I guess, there's certainly Matt Groening and The Simpsons and Futurama are very literate, and, you know, this, so I think there's a sort of um, philia, cinephilia, fantasy philia It's also a, a clash of on. different animation styles in this, isn't there? There's, there's the whole, well, the whole spectrum of of cartoon animation and that there are some scenes as we've already mentioned that are very sort of um, technologically sophisticated yeah. to announce their CGI status and then we have the character of Lucy and we have the title sequences that seem to be much more sort of picture book and, and limited in its uh, well, Yeah, what's interesting, just to, just to kind of jump in, the, the title sequences change with every episode. So they actually for, foreshadow what's going to happen in the series. So there's some, uh, they're often yeah, very sort of uh, either done in silhouette or limited animation, very angular, very geometric, um, not much detail, but they change with every episode. So they, they sort of function as a, as a teaser to what's going to happen, which, right. um, which is unusual, you know, yeah. for, for television. And actually the Simpsons does that doesn't it? It changes ever so slightly component parts of its title sequence, whereas Disenchantment sort of goes a bit goes a bit further and tries to announce some of the things that are going to happen in the in the episode itself. Um, well, mean, that that could be riffing on uh, Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones does that, which I've always argued is actually a riff on Play Days, but that might just be. It, it, it is in my head, but that will do. Save it um, for a future future podcast. Well, do you remember? Do you remember Play Days? Do you, or you? I do remember. Yeah, you Play Days. You know, so Play Days. You always used to do. Uh, what's the stop? Yes. Uh, and it would tell you where it's going that week in the title sequence. Yeah. Um, and that Game of Thrones, for those who have watched it, does that in that each title sequence every week only goes to the locations that the show will go to that. Week. So maybe again, that's this idea of mapping. Um, it's. Yeah. it's um, there, I don't have anything else to say other than there's one line, and this perhaps connects to the the idea of illusion um, and narration, where you have a <laughs> during during some of the scenes you have an uh, an in an in show scribe who's writing down the events, almost as if they're being told they're being retold at the same time as they're being told. Um, so he sort of narrates his process, um, and there's also a kind of artist. So at some point during one of the early episodes where she doesn't want to get married and she's sitting looking quite forlorn, she's like, this is the wedding dress that my mother used to used to wear or wore when she married my father. Uh, I thought when it was my wedding day, I'd be a lot happier. And the sort of camera cuts to Giuseppe, who's an artist, who's like, I'm really, you know, painting the scene live, if you like, and says, I'm really sorry. Um, I can redo it if you want. And she says, no, 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 we, Giuseppe, we hired you for your emotional realism. And I thought that was interesting because I thought, oh, I wonder where we've talked about where the fantasy is and what what audiences have got to kind of latch onto. It's there's a lot of emotional realism, I think, in the in the, the program. Like I believe the relationship between the characters. Um, they do laugh at some of the absurd things that happen. There are contemporaneous references for an audience that are sitting in 2018 uh, watching it, um, and it matches that with a period setting. Um, and in the classic way that that period settings work. This is not telling us about the period in which it is set. It's telling us more about the period than it was made. And so the points about kind of gender-neutral highway people 
and gender politics and, and kind of the role of cruelty, I think, certainly in, in a, an age of uh, Donald Trump, are really interesting. This is very much a, a kind of uh, a product of America. Um, but yeah, that's right. all I got. Yeah, so I think I think it's a tentative... <laughs> On that note. <laughs> a tentative yes from us in yeah. terms of recommending it. Yeah. Uh, I think it needs to bed in, but then I guess like if we were 10 episodes into The Simpsons, we probably would record a similar podcast in tone I think um, so yeah I mean time will tell we've so we, we've got 10 episodes in the can if you like um, a few, another 10 have been another 10 right? have been commissioned so they'll be next year uh, and it's also been renewed for a, a 20 episode second season so actually the first season has been split in two we've got we're, we're halfway through the first season um, with more to come well I'm sure we'll check it out and um, maybe much further down the line we'll, we'll revisit yeah uh, disenchantment we'll, revisited yeah, re-disenchanted yeah um, so that will be that will be confusing for everyone. Um, but for now, you can find us at the usual spots: fancy-animation.org. Uh, click on um, the contact us uh, links on that uh, to get in touch, uh, suggest some blog posts or things like that. Uh, Twitter, fananim research. Fa- at fananim research. If you're in, I mean, if you've watched Disenchantment and have other views, oh, about, yeah. opposing views, similar views, um, get, yeah, get in touch. I think as more yeah. episodes come out, we'd l- we'd love to sort of see where. I guess where they where they go with it, and, and ultimately where where we can go. So if you'd like to um, write something up on on episodes that you've seen, or you're interested in other similar kinds of fantasy animated programs, or just at us and on Twitter or or Facebook's a good place for do that. We often post discussion questions on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's a good place for that. Um, otherwise, uh, take care, and we'll uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye. Stop right there, your ladiness. A delicate flower like yourself has no place aboard. Oh, good point. I want to be in charge of my own destiny. Isn't there a point in everyone's life where they need to go figure out who they are? I promise to never have another drink. You're drinking right now. Where did that come from?